Good morning. Whoa. <laughs> morning. <laughs> Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 7, 1 through 28. 28 verses, guys. Okay. For this, <laughs> for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it, it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
How about now? Okay. Um, anyway, so if this happens to be your first Sunday with us, um, I want to point out the obvious. There's a lot of words and phrases in this passage that may seem confusing, otherworldly, um, words like Levites, tribes, high priests, Melchizedek, and I get that's confusing. I want to I give you one question, though, based on one of, those, one of those words, one of those phrases, high priest. And I want to ask you this question. Why might you need a high priest? Now, let me explain what I mean by that. A high priest is someone that makes it okay for us to be in the presence of God. A high priest is someone who makes it okay for us to be in the presence of God. So do you need that? Do you need somebody to make it okay for you to be in God's presence? Do you need that? And I think the only way you're going to know the answer to that question is if you know who God is and you know who you are. You know who the true God is and you know really, truly who you are. That's the only way you can know the answer to the question, do I need somebody to make it okay for me to be in the true God's presence. So, we made it to Melchizedek. We've been going through Hebrews, and we've mentioned him multiple times in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And now in chapter 7, there's this lengthy explanation of who he is and why, as he said earlier, why it gives us a deeper understanding of the gospel, a deeper understanding of Jesus. And so we're going to dig into the passage today and of how, how it does that. Because he quoted Psalm 2 earlier in Hebrews, talking about Jesus, our king, the king of kings that rules forever. But then he also quoted Psalm 110, that Jesus isn't only our king, he's also our high priest. But there was no one that ever had that dual office of king and high priest. And that's one of the reasons he brings up this figure, Melchizedek, who had both offices. And somehow that connects with how Jesus is both our king and our high priest. And then last week, when we were at Victorious Life, we went through Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, and we ended off with the hope that Jesus is the anchor of our very souls, that Jesus is in the heart of heaven, already there in glory, anchored, and will bring us home, even with the winds and the waves and the storms that may hurt us, but they won't move us. He's got us. The trajectory doesn't change. He will bring us home. We have a hope for the future. And the passage today just increases the hope that we have in Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but when you think about the future and you think about a long time from now, where is the confident hope you can have that you're going to be okay? If I, if I think about my life and even go back, you go back a couple years and maybe not a whole lot changes, not monumental changes, but you go back 10 years, you go back a decade, and a lot changes. If I go back just two of those decades, I was 13 years old. My mom would call me a teeny bopper, and I hated that. It's like, finally was a teenager. I'm a teenager mom, and she'd be like, you're a teeny bopper. And so, didn't like that. Just two decades, two decades ago. And we think about the future and you add a decade, two decades, five decades, not even to mention a thousand years from now. Where is your confidence that you're going to be okay? Where is your hope? And he is relentlessly showing us where our hope can and should be 
in none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Today, the passage just strengthens our hope in him. Here's the main idea of Hebrews chapter 7. God gives us his word that Jesus will keep us in right relationship with God forever. Not temporarily, forever. God gives us his word that Jesus will keep us in right relationship with God forever, always. So the breakdown of the passage today, we're jumping around a little bit. It's a whole chapter. I'm not going to keep you here for 12 hours and go verse by verse as I usually try to do. But first we see the precedence of Melchizedek. Precedence of what? I'll explain. But that's verses 1 through 16. Secondly, he brings our attention to the priests, plural, of the Old Covenant. And that's mentioned in verses 18, the first part of verse 19, and verse 23. And then he lands with the priest, singular, of the New Covenant in verses 24 through 28. So Hebrews 7 is giving us the hope that God gives us his word that Jesus will keep us in right relationship with God forever. And he's going to take us down this road to lead us to that conclusion. But he's starting with this figure, this mysterious guy named Melchizedek. And he's pointing out a precedent in this person. And I'm going to talk about what that precedent is. So first, uh, direct your attention to verses 1 through 16. I'm not going to reread all of those verses. But I have two questions from those 16 verses about Melchizedek and this precedent that he's setting. First of all, who is this guy? Who is he? So, second question is going to be, so what? Like, why does that matter? Why does he matter? Why is he brought up here in this passage? So first, who is this guy? Will the real Melchizedek please stand up? Because if you do some research and you do some reading about it, you'll find multiple theories about who this enigmatic, this enigma, this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, was. I found eight. I found eight. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's more. I didn't do a super heavy dive on this. But I found at least eight theories of who this person is. And I could be, I, I had the thought, you know, some people, if you ask, well, what's the first question you're going to have? You walk into the, the pearly gates, you go into heaven. First question. It might be something like, God, explain to me the problem of evil. Or, Lord, explain to me how you are completely in control and yet we have, we have free will. We have decisions that we make. Lord, explain to me why this happened in my life. I think some people are waiting and they're just going to ask God, who's Melchizedek? First question. I know, I know a couple people who are going to ask that question. So here's, here's, here's my, um, my answer to that question. There's at least eight theories. I'm going to give you six, and then I'm going to tell you very briefly why I don't think it's any of those, and then I'm going to give you two more and, and say how they have good biblical support, and then pick one of those, and then go from there. You following? Okay. So, I didn't write these down. I'm just going to go through them quick. Who is this guy? Here's the first six theories about who he is. One, Shem, one of the sons of Noah that God blessed. And if it's not Shem, it's one of his descendants. That's one of the one of the theories of who Melchizedek is. Secondly, an angelic redeemer, some divine figure, some, I read Michael, the archangel, or some other, some other angelic being that redeems. Third, an end-time priest. Fourth, the Holy Spirit. Fifth, 
an unfallen Adam sent to observe God's creation. That's an interesting one. Number six, a tutelary deity. Yes, I did look up the word tutelary. And it means a guardian of a specific place. And the theory is that this was a, this was a guardian of the area where the Davidic kings would live in Jerusalem. And so that's, what, that's who Melchizedek was. Those are six theories of who Melchizedek is. And he, I agree with the New American Commentary that essentially says you can rule out all of these. They are either Gnostic, Jewish, or Christian speculation with very little or none at all biblical support. And so we're going to go with scripture over speculation. And I want to say something else. Regardless of any of these theories that people choose of this is who I believe Melchizedek is, it does not change the point of the passage and the reason that he's brought up somehow to give us a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, a deeper grasp of the gospel to see this promise that God gives his word, that Jesus will keep us in right relationship with God forever. Do not go down the road of taking a passage like this and making your, your whole life or an argument about the rest of scripture and you get lost in the weeds and you miss the big picture of why he's mentioned at all in the first place. So anyway, these six theories, lots of speculation, not a lot of scripture. One other, one other something I want to say. If this person was a divine figure, like some speculate, that would create a problem called the dual eternal priesthood, that there are two eternal priests, Jesus and whoever this other person is, and that, that violates what scripture teaches. And so that's what I'm going to say about those first six theories. Now, there's two more I'm going to mention. Both have compelling biblical reasons to believe them, and then I'll tell you the one that I'm, that I'm, that I'm going with. So, one, the seventh one, the one that has some good biblical evidence, is a Christophany. Do you guys remember that word? Sound familiar? Remember Advent? It's past Advent. Christophany were brief, momentary appearances of Jesus before Christmas, before the incarnation. Genesis 18, he shows up to Abraham to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 32, I believe it is, he shows up and has a wrestling match with the patriarch Jacob. There's the fourth man in the fire like a son of God with the Hebrews in Daniel, and there's other examples as well. There's biblical precedent of these Christophanies, appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament, these brief, pivotal encounters that he had. And so many believe this, that many believe that Melchizedek was a, an appearance of Jesus before the incarnation, before Christmas. And there's some compelling reasons to, to believe that. So that's view number seven. Now there's view number eight, the one that I find the most compelling that I'm going to go with, which is that Melchizedek was a Canaanite priest king. He was a historical figure, a person that was a Canaanite priest king. And I'll give some reasons as we go through the verses, because that's what we want to do. We want to be in the scripture to get the reasons why we believe what we believe. So what does the Bible say about him? What does the scripture say about him? Now, Melchizedek is mentioned, and the only time he appears is in Genesis chapter 14, when he shows up to Abraham. And that's what our passage talks about today. But he also is mentioned in Psalm 110. 
So we have Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and in our passage today, Hebrews chapter 7, which references both of those passages. So what does the Bible say about them? I'm going to remind you of verses 1 through 3 of how the speaker, author to the Hebrews, brings up Melchizedek and the reason that he does. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. In these verses, I see him talking about the position of Melchizedek, the historical account of Melchizedek, and the name Melchizedek. The position is that he is both a king and a priest. And we're already jumping ahead a little bit. This is significant to show eventually how Jesus is both our king and our priest. But he was a king, Melchizedek was, a king of Salem. Now, Christian and Jewish tradition both hold to the belief that Salem was ancient Jerusalem, the city-state of Jerusalem. Jewish and Christian tradition hold to that. On top of that, Psalm 76, verse 2, uses Salem synonymously with Jerusalem. And so, compelling reason to believe this was a literal place, ancient Jerusalem, that Melchizedek, this person, ruled over as king. For those interested, I think this is one of the more, the bigger reasons to believe that this is not a Christophany. Because Jesus with Christophanies appeared momentarily, pivotal, pivotal encounters with the people of God. He did not hold political positions for a lifetime before he came at Christmas. And so, position, he's king of Salem. But he's not only the king there, it says he's priest. Priest of the Most High God. So, it's telling us here, in verse 1 and 2, that Melchizedek was a priest to God. That's talking about the true God, the most high God. So some of us might have the question, how did he know God? How was he a priest to God? That's a good question. I have lots of questions. This is an untold story of Melchizedek. And we might say, how did he know God? Good question. I'm going to answer the question with another question. How did Job know God? Job lived during the time either of the patriarchs or maybe even before and there's no account there of how he got a relationship with the true God either. And so an untold story, but he's king of Salem and priest of the most high God. Then he tells us, re- reminding us of Genesis 14, when this guy showed up. And the answer is he showed up in Genesis 14 after Abraham, who we talked about last week, right? Um, first pilgrim of the faith, first pa- the patriarch that God would start the nation of Israel through with him and Sarah. He shows up to Abraham after Abraham rescues his cousin, Lot, who had long story. There were these kings, uh, four of them that were upset with these five other kings because they weren't paying tribute. So they went and killed a lot of them and took their stuff and took Lot, who lived in the land of Sodom. And Sodom's in danger. Uh, Sorry, Lot is in danger. And so Abraham goes with 318 trained men and rescues his cousin and comes on back 
to where they were living. And on the way back, this person, Melchizedek, shows up and somehow knows who Abraham is and blesses him and receives a tithe from him. He blesses him and he receives a tithe from him. What's happening here? He's, he's doing these priestly duties, blessing, receiving tithe. Some may ask, if he's receiving tithe, does that mean he's being worshipped? It's another interesting question. And I, my response would be no. When the Levites tithed, when the, sorry, when, when the Israelites tithed to the Levites, they weren't worshipping the Levites. The tithe was going to God. Please don't worship people that accept tithes today either. It's for, it's for the Lord and the furtherance of the kingdom of God. But there's the historical account of Melchizedek. He just shows up, blesses Abraham, receives a tithe. And then he points out his name here in verses 1 through 3, Melchizedek. It, it's a two-part word that means king of righteousness, Melchizedek. And he ruled over Salem. Salem means peace derived from the word shalom. And so he's using a, a, a literary technique here to show that, yes, he's, his name means king of righteousness, and since he's ruling over Salem, he's like king of peace. And this is supposed to remind us of, of Jesus, right? Retrospectively, we see Jesus is king of righteousness. Jesus is, as Isaiah 9 prophesied, prince of peace. And so we're thinking about him. But the main reason that Melchizedek is highlighted here for us in these verses, in chapter 7, for this message, is to show the uniqueness of Melchizedek's priesthood. That's what he's getting after in verse 3, the uniqueness of his priesthood. So he's king and priest. What kind of priest? What order of priesthood is this? And that gets us to verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Can I tell you, I stared at these verses for a long time this week and was like, tell me what you mean, please. <laughs> he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, if we take that literally, that's supernatural origin. That's a supernatural origin. No beginning of days, no end of life. But I want to read to you what the New American Commentary says on this. It's possible to take the words literally as implying supernatural origin. However, the better interpretation is that his parents are not recorded in Scripture. There's an example of this in Esther chapter 2, verse 7. It says Esther had neither father nor mother. It's not that she literally had no father or mother. It was explaining why Mordecai, her cousin, was taking care of her. His parents were not recorded in Scripture, and the Scripture is silent concerning gene the genealogy of Melchizedek altogether. The key of interpreting the withouts, without mother, without father, without, is to highlight the fact that there's no genealogy recorded for Melchizedek. Why does that matter? Because he's going he's gonna to bring up the fact that this is in direct contrast with the only priesthood the Hebrews were knew of, which was the Levitical priesthood through the Mosaic covenant, where you had to know your genealogy. You could only be a priest if you were a Levite. You had to have two Israelite parents from the tribe of Levi, descended from Aaron, in order to be 
a priest. The primary purpose of the statement is not to establish a factual point, but to exhibit the radical difference that existed between the priesthood of, the, of Melchizedek and the more familiar priesthood of the Levites. That's why he brings it up, to show the distinction here. So the, the sudden appearance and disappearance of Melchizedek with no genealogy, with no record of history, evokes the notion of timelessness, which was prefigured, which was in a, a, an anticipation in Melchizedek, but is fully realized in Christ, the timeless one. You see, what's true of Melchizedek in a limited and literary sense is true absolutely of Jesus, the one who's not just testified to be living, as it says in verse 8, but who has an indestructible life, who is raised from the dead, and who is our high priest forever. That's what he's getting after when he gets to verses 15 through 16. It says this, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So let me summarize all of that to get to the, the, the point that he's mentioned. Why is he mentioned? The uniqueness of Melchizedek. Here it is. Because he established a precedence of a priesthood, not by posterity or lineage or law, but by promise. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Why is Melchizedek mentioned here? It's not to come up with this whole theory of this random person from the past just because. He's brought up because he, is, he established a precedence of a priesthood that was put together not by, not by posterity, not descendants, not by lineage, not by law, but by promise, by the promise of God. He's brought up. So this is how we're going to find out. Jesus is our high priest. He's not a descendant of Levi. He's a descendant of Judah. There were kings in the line of Judah, in the tribe of Judah, but not in the line of, he's not part of the, the tribe of Levi. So he can't be a priest from the Levitical tribe. But he is one by promise, by the word of God, similar with what happened with Melchizedek. And he points out in this passage that the order, the pattern of priesthood in Melchizedek that's by promise is greater than the priesthood that was given through the Mosaic Covenant for the Levites. That's what verses 4 to 10 are all about. I'm not going to reread those verses. I'm just going to explain it to you. In verses 4 to 10, where he was saying that essentially since Abraham tithed to Melchizedek and in the very act of him tithing to Melchizedek, it's showing that the order of priesthood that Melchizedek is, is greater than the order of the, of the Levite priesthood, because the Levites, none of them had been born yet. They were still in the loins of, of Abraham, it says. They were still a sparkle in Abraham's eye. They haven't been born yet. And yet the tithe from Abraham is going to a greater priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And that's the one to whom Jesus belongs to. Jesus is a priest after the order, after the pattern of Melchizedek, by the word of God, by the oath of God. And that's greater than the Levitical one. And that's why he brings up in verses 18 through 19, 20, verses 23 and 27, 
he reminds us of the priests of the old covenant to point out the weaknesses there and the need for a new kind of priest. And that gets us to the priests, plural, of the old covenant. And he points out for us the provisional sacrifices, the temporary ones of the old covenant, and the provisional, the temporary priests of the old covenant. And that's in verses 18 through 19, verse 23, and verse 27. So the provisional sacrifices, look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. He's saying the former commandment, the whole sacrificial system that was set up was temporary and was provisional. It couldn't keep anyone in right relationship with God permanently. We see that in the very system itself. There were sacrifices again and again and again and again, every day and every year. Every day that the priests had to sacrifice first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. It showed the weakness in the very system itself in it. And then on top of that, verse 23 says, they just kept on dying. <laughs> the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They had to keep raising up new ones. This couldn't last forever. It was temporary. Now, I want to point out, uh, I read something from N.T. Wright in Hebrews for Everyone, a commentary on Hebrews. He points out that in Europe, in many of these, these ancient churches, these parishes, there were lists of previous priests and pastors. And there'd be 600-something names of all these different priests and pastors that used to serve in the church over the years. And he points out that when you're reading that, there might be three, maybe four at most that were still alive and everybody else had passed away. But in some ways, that's, that's a good thing in that churches need new leaders, need new pastors to have new skill sets, new ideas, to reach a new culture at a new time and a different set of weaknesses. We need that. But when we get to Jesus, it stops. When we get to Jesus, there's no more need to raise up another leader, to raise up another priest or king as part of the Mosaic Covenant. He's all we need. He's all we want, not temporarily, but permanently. The sacrificial system had a clock on it. It was meant to be temporary. It was provisional, pointing ahead to something and to someone infinitely greater. And that gets us to the priest singular of the new covenant in verses 24 to 28. So God gives us his word that Jesus will keep us in right relationship with God forever. And he's showing us how we can have hope and confidence that that's true. And it's true because Jesus is our high priest, verses 24 through 28. So in verses 24 to 25, it talks about his permanent priesthood. And then in verses 26 to 28, the kind of priest that he is and that we need, our perfect priest. Look at verses 24 to 25. He's our permanent priest. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, there's no more need ever again to replace the the people that stand between us and God, that bridge the gap between holy God and sinful humanity. Jesus has done that once and for all and forever. It's permanent. And so he's able to save to the uttermost. I've heard people cite this verse to say, look, he can save. It means he can save anyone anywhere around the world to the uttermost, to the guttermost, anyone. And yes, that's true. He can save anyone across the whole world. But the point of it, what he's been building up to is the permanent nature of his deliverance. It's forever. So when we talked about last week, Jesus, our spiritual anchor, keeping us, preserving us, will bring us home to glory. What we see in the passage today is that he will never kick us out. You don't have to worry that after a while he's going to get sick of you. Or will it change? The The Mosaic covenant came and went. How can I have confidence that the new covenant will remain? He tells us that it will. The old one was temporary and provisional. He passed over the sins that were previously committed, that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus for good, forever. There's our hope. Those who draw near to God through him can have that assurance. Those who draw near to God through who? Through Jesus. The one that makes it okay for us to be in the presence of God permanently and only him. It is only through Jesus that we can have access to God and remain with him in glory forever. So back to my first question, do you need a high priest? Do you need someone to make it okay for you to be in the presence of God? God says the answer to that is yes. Whether we think so, whether we feel that way or not, whether we think we're good enough to be in God's presence, he tells us we do, and that Jesus alone is the answer, and that Jesus alone made a way for us to be with God permanently. That's what he's getting at in verses 26 through 28, as Jesus, our perfect priest, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, that's not us, innocent, that's not us, unstained, not us. It's Jesus, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came after The law, this is the whole summary of chapter 27, verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He is our perfect representative before God and the one that makes it possible for us to be in his presence at all in the first place and then keep us there. He's the only unique son of God our priest that was that ever offered his life for the sins of the people and the only one that that offering would be acceptable to God because of his perfect sinless unblemished life we know that's not us 
sacrifices were offered daily in the Old Covenant. We sin daily. We think lies about God. We speak incorrectly about him. We lie, we steal, we cheat. We cheat, we cheat ourselves, others. We, we break relationship with others and God and ourselves, and we do it all the time. But Jesus, our perfect high priest, laid down his own life in order to bring us to God and keep us there. And the only question for us is, will we approach him? He's done all the work. He's done all of it. And he invites us freely to approach him, to confess our sins to him, believe in him, and be with him, not temporarily, but permanently in the life to come. And so if any of that brings to mind something that you want prayer for today, there's going to be people available in the corner over here to pray after service, find someone to pray with, find a believer, anyone to pray with you. You know, Peter calls us in, the, in, in 1 Peter a royal priesthood. We can usher, because of Christ in us, we can usher one another into the very presence of God. We can pray for each other and represent God in that way. And so I hope you take advantage of that today and, 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 and pray with someone uh, this, this morning. So I'm going to pray for us as we continue to worship uh, the Lord and take communion. God, when we think about the future, when we really think about it and how much changes, even just in a, in a decade or so, Lord, help us cling to the words we just sang a little while ago that you never change. We change, the world change, the, you never change. And you have given us your word that we can be in glory with you forever, not because of ourselves, not because of anything or anyone, but only because of Jesus, who offered himself, who gave himself freely, so that we can be forgiven and accepted, not for a month, not for 20 years, not for a million years, but forever. Because of him, we can have confidence. God, I pray that you grow our confidence in you, Jesus. I pray, Lord, for those of us that have been walking with you for a while, would you help us to care to continue to grow, to not be spiritually lazy, to dig in, to know you more, to be in community with your people, to serve, and to grow in the depths of the gospel. And God, I pray for anyone here that's never that knows they don't have hope for the future. They have no idea where they'll be. God, I pray that somehow you get through to them, that you speak to them, and that they would want to know you more and cling to the only hope that we could ever have, you, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.